with me to Philippians chapter 2. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, I'll be focusing this morning in the sermon on verses 10 and 11, but let me read starting at verse 1, remind us of the context. This is the holy and inspired and inerrant and authoritative word of God. Let's listen carefully. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and King, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you that you have highly exalted your Son, that you have bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And you have revealed to us your purpose in this, that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us to do that even this day as we come to your word. Help us to bow before our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Help, him, help us to reverence him as Lord. Help us to receive his word, your word, with meekness and with reverence. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We return this morning uh, for uh, a, a final time to this wonderful, beautiful passage in which uh, the Lord holds out to us the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, even as he is calling us uh, to, to follow Jesus and to be like Jesus in our own humility and how we treat one another and how we are to count others more significant than ourselves. Uh, but the, the Lord has shown us that this is precisely what Jesus has done in humbling himself. Even uh, before the foundation of the world, the second person of the, the Trinity, the Son of God dwelling in inapproachable glory, uh, willingly submitted himself to the incarnation, became a man, take, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself, and then in his ministry among us as a human being, being born in the likeness of men, he further humbles himself and, and takes um, this death upon himself, this death which his father had ordained and had planned and had called the son to do. And not just death, but the cursed death of the cross, 
taking not just death, but the, the death of a, a criminal, the death of a sinner, the, the curse of being hung on a tree. We see Jesus humbling himself further and further, being humiliated further and further until he is brought as low as he could possibly be. But last week, um, we, we saw that that wasn't the end of the story. And uh, we get to verse 9 and this wonderful news that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And we see that, that the Lord, in his divine plan, uh, accepted the, the death, the sacrifice of Christ, the humility, the humbling of Christ, and gave him glory in response. This uh, exaltation has already taken place. God has already exalted him and has already bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And we briefly made the, the case last week as we considered this passage that the name which is being spoken of here is the divine name. It is the name Yahweh, the name of God himself. Uh, the Lord is recognizing that even as Jesus uh, rose from the dead in, in triumph, he, he proved himself to be the son of God, uh, very God of very God. And he shares in the divine name and all of the glory that belongs to the Father belongs to him as well. But now he has, in, in a sense, not, not greater glory, but a greater demonstration of, of glory in that he has now come as, as, as the God-man, as the Messiah who has purchased a people for himself, who has humbled himself and has now earned, in a sense, uh, the name uh, which is above every name. Now, as we come to verse 10 and 11, we see the, the Lord unpack, in a sense, his purpose in bestowing this name on Jesus Christ, this exaltation of Jesus Christ, which has already taken place. Uh, we see that uh, the, the passage begins with the word, so that, so that, at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we look at this purpose that the Lord has in exalting his son, the, the result, uh, we're going to approach this from uh, several different perspectives. First of all, uh, we're going to look at the Old Testament background. Paul here is actually referencing uh, Isaiah 45. He is uh, almost quoting it word from word. The, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, is very, very close to the language which is found here in verse 10 and 11. And so we're going to look at that passage and we're going to look at what it has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ and his exaltation now uh, and this promise that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Once we look at the Old Testament passage, uh, we are then going to see that there, there are really, in the way that Paul is quoting this, two aspects to this taking place. There is, there is a now portion of this. Um, a, a, what, what Paul is calling us to here is, is here and now there is a sense in which we should, uh, especially as Christians, but a, a sense in which God is calling all people here and now to do this now, to bow before Jesus and to confess his name. And this is, this is what the gospel is all about. This is what the church does as we hear the gospel and as we respond by faith. We confess that Jesus is Lord. 
and we bow our knee before him. And this is exactly what Paul is saying we are to do in the church in verses 1 through 4 as, as we are called to consider others more significant, more important than ourselves, and as we are called to humble ourselves. This is us obeying Jesus as our sovereign Lord as he is calling us to do this thing. But there's also a, a future component to this. Not only is this something that the Lord says should happen now and, and that we as believers are, are called to do now, but we'll, we'll see as we look at the Isaiah 45 reference that there is a, a future insight here as well where this will take place on a, on a worldwide scale where, where all of those created beings, both, both angels and demons, as well as both uh, redeemed humanity and fallen humanity, will bow the knee before Jesus Christ and will confess that he is Lord. And so we're going to see that, uh, yes, this is, this is coming. Jesus is already exalted, but there will, there will come a day where this exaltation is, is undeniable even to those who are in rebellion against him and where they, they will be forced to uh, come before him in, in shame and, and confess that he is Lord. And then finally, uh, we will see how all of this magnifies God the Father. So the passage ends with the phrase, to the glory of God the Father. And as the Son is exalted, as believers are gathered in, as, as we confess his name and confess that he is Lord, as we bow the knee before him, and as Christ returns on the last day and gathers his people to himself and judges the world in righteousness, all of this manifests the glory of God the Father. And this is the, the ultimate purpose, the, the, ultimate, um, the, the ultimate thing that, that God is doing through his Son in, in redeeming a people for himself in, in all of these things. It is for his glory that his name might be magnified and that his glory might show forth. And so we, we will uh, conclude the sermon looking at that, how all of this brings glory to God the Father. So Paul has, uh, again, um, come to this recognizing that, that this exaltation of Jesus Christ has already taken place. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And the purpose of that exaltation is, is found in verse 10, then, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I mentioned that this is a reference from the book of Isaiah. And I would like you to turn back with me to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. We're going to spend some time in this passage. Paul is, is doing something really remarkable here. And uh, as we turn to Isaiah 45 and, and read it, I, I think you will begin to see just the, the weight of what Paul is doing in quoting this particular section of the book of Isaiah. I want to start by reading Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23. And this is the section that Paul is quoting. Uh, but once we read that, then we're going to move back a little bit in the chapter and uh, get some context. Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23. This is the Lord speaking. And he is speaking to the earth, you'll note. So he says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word 
that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So um, you may have a, if you're reading in the ESV, you might have a, a margin note there after swear allegiance. Uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this, which is really more of a commentary at points than a translation, uh, rather than uh, reading every tongue shall swear allegiance, it, it says every tongue shall confess to God. Um, and so Paul very clearly here picking up on this language when he says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now there are a few things I want us to note here about Isaiah 45 and this passage that Paul is speaking of here and and using in reference to Jesus Christ. Um, The first thing that I want us to note is that this passage is very clearly a passage which is speaking of God. It is, it is speaking of the divine Lord. It is speaking of Yahweh. Um, and we, we see the name of the Lord used over and over throughout this chapter. Um, backing up to verse 5. And remember that everywhere we see the, the word Lord in all capitals in our English translations, that's actually the, uh, the divine name for God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah is there in the original Hebrew text. And um, out of uh, uh, respect for the name of God, uh, it was the Jewish tradition that the name of God was not to be spoken of aloud. And we've carried that tradition over into our English translations. And so uh, the Jews would, um, rather than speaking the divine name, they would replace it with with the word Adonai, which is Lord. uh, And that's what we have in our English Bibles. Uh, But wherever you see Lord in all caps, understand that this is the name of God there in the original text. And so the Lord is speaking in verse 5. And he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Again, at the end of verse 6, verse 6 reads that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so here in this chapter, the the Lord is attesting that he alone is God, that there is no other God besides him. In fact, he he goes on to make it clear that the the gods that the nations serve, the the idols that they bow down to are, are no gods at all. Uh, that they are nothing before him, and that they have, have no reason to be reverenced, but he alone is God, and there is not any other. He speaks here as well of uh, his work in creating all things, in, in forming the world. Uh, when he speaks of creating darkness and light and making well-being and calamity, he goes on to mention how he is sovereign over the, the nations. Um, in verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. 
not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord here is speaking of King Cyrus, the the king of the Persians, who will issue the edict of restoration and allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild after the Babylonian exile. And the Lord says, this is my doing. He may be a king, but I'm, I'm the one governing him. I'm the one who is overseeing and ordaining his actions. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level, and he will carry out my will. Skipping down to verse 18. Um, so you'll notice that uh, the Lord speaks not only of himself as creator, as the sovereign ruler over his creation, the one who establishes what even kings will do, but he also speaks of himself as the savior of his people. Uh, in verse 17, it says, Israel is saved by the Lord, by Yahweh, with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And then moving on to verse 18, for thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And so over and over again, the the Lord here hammers home in this chapter, I am the Lord, I am God, there is no other. So think about that in, in light of Paul now quoting this in Philippians 2 and saying to us, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow. Who were the knees bowing to in Isaiah 45? Who were the tongues confessing? They were confessing that Yahweh is Lord, that Yahweh is God, that there is no other God but him. There is, as we look at Isaiah 45 and as we see how Paul quotes it in Philippians 2, there is, there is almost no more clear place that we could go to in the New Testament to see this great truth that Jesus is God, that he is one with the Father, that all of the, the divine majesty that belongs to Yahweh is found in Jesus Christ. If you ever have uh, Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and try to make the case that, no, Jesus is a, a created being, he's, he's not God, and we shouldn't honor him as Jehovah. Well, come to this passage and, and see how the Lord himself speaks of of the glory that belongs to Jehovah alone and applies that to Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. To Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Now, as we turn back to Philippians 2, having, having seen how Paul takes this Old Testament passage, which speaks of the divine prerogatives and the divine glory of Yahweh and how he, he takes this and applies it to Jesus Christ. Uh, he does so in a very interesting way. Isaiah 45 verse 23 speaks about um, knees that will bow and tongues that, that will confess, that, that will take an oath of allegiance to God. But notice how Paul, as he quotes it, uh, changes the the form of the language slightly um, and changes it from will bow to should bow and will confess to should confess. 
This is actually, uh, it's interesting and it's, it's very deliberate. Um, in the Greek version of Isaiah 45, the Septuagint version, uh, the language is actually more similar to the Hebrew. It's, it's will confess, it's, it's will bow. These things are certain and fixed. Um, but Paul here now is um, speaking of, of God's purpose, and he does so uh, in a, a slightly different manner. He's using a, a Greek mood here, the, um, uh, the subjunctive mood, uh, which speaks of what should happen, what, what should take place, what, uh, what we're aiming at at, at times, but uh, which at times when Greek writers are using this, they're speaking of things which, uh, which they want to see happen and, and should happen, but may or may not ultimately result. Um, that's not what is actually going on here. This, this is something that, that will happen. Uh, Isaiah 45 makes that clear. The Lord promises that this will take place. And yet there is an element where uh, right now we aren't at that point yet. We haven't arrived at the point of history when the, when the will happens. We are, uh, in a sense, in the, in the not yet portion of history where these things should be taking place and, and are to some extent and yet not completely. And so Paul captures this when he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These are things that should be happening right now, and that are happening in a limited way in the church. Uh, in those who are being redeemed by Christ, are being renewed by his Holy Spirit. You can think of examples of this very thing happening in, in Paul's life himself. Think of Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, Saul, who was a persecutor of Jesus Christ uh, and his church. Saul, who sought to imprison uh, believers, those who confessed the name of Jesus Christ, who was trying to stamp out what he thought of as, as this heresy of, of Christianity, these, uh, these people who, uh, in, in his view, were blaspheming God by, by claiming that uh, this human being, Jesus Christ, was equal with God the Father. And Paul was trying to put an end to it, trying to arrest, trying to stamp out, uh, at, at times even supporting Christians being put to death. And what takes place? The Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus and strikes him blind in his glorious radiance. And, and what is Paul's first question to the Lord as, as he's kneeling in the dust before the glory of God, appearing before him, having been struck blind? And, and Paul responds, who are you, Lord? The very first word out of Paul's mouth is a confession. He doesn't know who this this God is who has appeared to him, this, this Christ, but he knows he's Lord, and he knows he's been humbled, and he bows before God. And this becomes the confession of, of Paul's life. As he now being uh, renewed by the Holy Spirit and commissioned as an apostle uh, makes it his mission in life to, to call uh, the elect from, from all the corners of the world to obedience to Jesus Christ, to become followers of Jesus Christ, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the, the language of the church, and uh, it's, I, I think it's um, very deliberate here that, that Paul uses the, the Greek Septuagint uh, version of, of the translation, which picks up the word confess 
uh, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, This is what it means to be a, a Christian, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, in Romans 10, this is exactly how Paul expresses it as he's speaking about who will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. read uh, starting in verse 8 to give us the context, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this is the call that is before us this morning. If if you are here this morning and you have not yet confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, understand that, that this is what you should do. This is what God is calling you to do. God calls on you to repent of your sins. God calls of you to recognize Jesus Christ is the sovereign, exalted Lord who has come to save a people for himself. God calls on you to confess him as Lord and to bend your knee before him. Paul, is, as he lays it out in Philippians 2, is, is really speaking about two different things that are two sides of, of the same coin, kneeling before the Lord and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Understand that in, in both of these, this is, this is not us merely just coming to Jesus as our Savior and uh, asking him into our hearts and, and praying that he would wash away the, the guilt of our sin. No, it is far more than that. It is a recognition that Jesus is King, that he is Lord, and that he sovereignly reigns over us. Paul here is saying what we, what we should do, what we are to do, what we must do as believers is to bow before him in complete submission, recognizing that, that he is our king and that he owns us, that we belong to him, and that his will uh, is the, the, the sovereign rule for our life. Now think about this in, in light of what Paul is commanding earlier in the chapter, in verses 1 through 4, when he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul here is saying, look, you are to bow before the Lord. You are to recognize that he is the king, that he is the authority over you, that he rules over you. And so you are then to respond in obedience to these things. Do these things because this is what your king calls you to. I think sometimes as Americans, we maybe have a a struggle, have a hard time understanding how to put a passage like this into practice because we don't don't have kings. Uh, We don't have uh, those in authority that have this kind of sovereign power to, to rule our lives. Uh, in our 
nation, our, our government, our uh, elected officials who are to carry out our wills. And so there is a sense in which we are, uh, at least politically speaking, sovereign over ourselves and, and the government exists to serve us rather than the other way around. But that was not so for those who were, who were living in uh, a, a monarchy or in a, an empire such as the Roman Empire where the, the ruler had absolute sovereign authority and the people were his subjects and were subject to his will. And where the, the followers of the king would take oaths of allegiance to obey him however he might command, however he might lead them. Now we are called to do this recognizing that, that Jesus is worthy of our obedience and is worthy of our devotion. Remember that God has highly exalted him because of what he has done for us, because of his humility, because of his suffering, because of his laying down of his own life in obedience on the cross for us. And so we, we come to a, a sovereign Lord who has loved us and has given himself for us, who has purchased us uh, by his own blood. And think about that, even, even uh, apart from the incarnation, even apart from Jesus Christ coming into the world and, and doing these things, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant and, and laying down his life on the cross. He had a right to expect our obedience as our, our creator, as, as the divine God who made all things and who sovereignly rules over all things. But he doesn't come again in the incarnation seeking his own glory and seeking his own uh, prerogatives, seeking, seeking that which is his right. Rather, he comes as a servant and he comes to serve us. He comes to obey his father. And so we, we come to a savior who, yes, rules over us, but rules over us by, by the right that has been given to him uh, by his father because of his obedience and because of his humbling himself and because of his serving himself and because of his pouring himself out in love for us. How more quick then should we be to respond in joyful obedience and thankful obedience, knowing what our savior has done for us. When he calls us to follow him, when he calls us to be like him, we should be quick to do that because we see what, what glorious character he himself has, has displayed in humbling himself. And so there is a should aspect to this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And we should not wait until Christ returns in glory to go about that work. God calls us here and now to bow the knee before Christ. And yet, as we see that Isaiah 45 passage that, that Paul is citing here, we recognize that, that this is not happening everywhere just yet. There are, there are many people in this world who are not confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord yet. There are many people in this world who are not yet bowing the knee before him. Uh, it's interesting how, how Paul highlights um, when he, when he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And perhaps you are hearkening back to the language we read earlier there in the second commandment, how uh, we are not to make any uh, graven image of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Here the Lord is, is speaking of the, the whole realm 
of creation, every, every part of creation. And he's highlighting the fact that there's not going to be a corner of creation that will not ultimately bow before Jesus. And that includes both humanity and it includes the spiritual beings, the angels that God has created. Um, I think the Lord very deliberately uses in heaven there to, to remind us that there are heavenly beings who are currently in rebellion against the Lord who will one day bow the knee. Now think about that and, and think about what that may look like on the day of Christ's return. Is, is Paul here saying that Satan and his followers are, are going to willingly uh, and joyfully submit themselves to God on that day and, and take an oath of allegiance, a covenantal oath in a, in a sense to serve the Lord. I, I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. John Calvin has a, a good summary of this on, on Satan and his followers in particular. He says, I confess indeed that uh, they are not and never will be subject of their own accord and by cheerful submission. But Paul is not speaking here of voluntary obedience. In other words, there will come a time where Satan will be forced to, to bow the knee, but it will be a, uh, a, uh, a forcing of, of the issue by God rather than a, a willing and joyful submission on, on the part of Satan and his followers. And the same is, is true for fallen humanity. Um, I, I think we see a hint of this in the passage that Paul is quoting in Isaiah 45, I, I didn't read the tail end of that chapter. Let me turn back to Isaiah 45 and read verses 24 and 25. So immediately after the promise is given in verse 23, the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. In other words, the Lord is saying, This is fixed. This is certain. There is not going to be a turning aside from this. I have spoken it, and it will come to pass. And the promise is given. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, it goes on, though. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so we, we see two types of humanity here presented in verses 24 and 25. On the one hand are, are the Lord's people, those who belong to him, the offspring of Israel. And he says, these shall be justified and shall glory. In other words, they shall come uh, willingly and joyfully before the Lord and submit themselves to him and honor and reverence him and give glory to his name. I think uh, Paul has this in, in the back of his mind when he, when he comes back at the end of the, the passage and, and says to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So that's one, one section of humanity, one, one group of people, those who know the Lord, those who honor him, those who willingly submit themselves to him. But then we, we see the other group mentioned in verse 24. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In other words, they will be forced to recognize that their rebellion against God is a shameful thing. Something that is, is not justified, is, is not successful. Something that has, has brought them into condemnation. 
And yet there's not a promise that they're going to turn aside from that rebellion in, in true repentance. I'm reminded of how Paul picks this up in, in Romans 9. Turn with me to Romans 9. Paul speaking here in Romans 9 of, of God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign election of uh, who he will save and, and who he will pass over. And again, uh, divides humanity really into these two groups of people, those who, who are, are brought to the Lord um, through his sovereign will, through his uh, divine election, and those who persist in rebellion, who the Lord passes over. Um, I'm going to read a, a couple of different sections of Romans 9. First of all, uh, he uses the example of Jacob and Esau in verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Paul then goes on to highlight Pharaoh as an example of this. Um, in verse 16, he says, So then it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And think of Pharaoh at the, the end of the account of the Exodus. The Lord has made himself known to Pharaoh. The, the Lord has raised Pharaoh up and has hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not let the people go. And the Lord has revealed himself over and over in the strikes, in the blows that he has brought against Egypt, culminating in the death of the firstborn son. And there, Pharaoh finally bows before the Lord and, and casts the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And even after he does that, there is still hardness of heart on his part. And he goes and he pursues the people and chases after them and tries to, to, to take them back by force and, and to bring them back to serve him. And all of this, there's, there's a battle going on, a, a question going on between the Lord and, and Pharaoh. The, the question is, who will Israel serve? Are, are they going to serve Yahweh? Are they going to worship Yahweh? Are they going to do the will of Yahweh? Or are they going to serve Pharaoh? Are they going to do the will of Pharaoh? Are they going to worship Pharaoh? And the Lord says to Pharaoh, these are my people. I made them. I called them. They belong to me. They will serve me. Let my people go. But as Pharaoh chases the, the people into the Red Sea and as the, the waters part over them, I, I imagine there is a moment of shame, a moment when, when Pharaoh realizes, okay, in my rebellion, I've been wrong. The Lord has prevailed and now my judgment is upon me. My life is being taken from me as, as Pharaoh goes under the waves and as his breath slips away and as he drowns in the deep, he recognizes with shame that the Lord is God, and that the Lord is sovereign over him. And yet there's no indication that Pharaoh had a change of heart and, and came to true repentance even as that happened. Rather, the Lord raised Pharaoh up to show the, the awful judgment that falls on those who rebel against him. And this Paul picks back up on in verses 19 and following when he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, there will come a day when Christ returns and when Christ judges the world in righteousness. And those who belong to him, those who have been made vessels of glory, as he spoke, speaks of here, uh, will be vindicated on that day. Our, our faith in Christ will, will, will show that we belong to him and that we have a place with him and that God is glorified in redeeming us by his blood. But those who reject Christ, yes, there will be a sense in which they they bow before him in in shame and and they will be forced to recognize that Jesus is Lord and and yet it will will not be in true repentance. It will not be in true humility. It will not be in true reverence. They, They will go to destruction still holding on to their enmity against God. And yet God is glorified in that because they are serving his purpose. They are bowing the knee before him. They are fulfilling his holy will. As the Lord speaks of, um, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Here, the Lord recognizes that a day is coming when, when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess, this is certain, this is fixed, it is coming. And yet there is a should aspect to it as well, that the Lord says this is something that we should do now. We should not wait for that last day to confess Christ, to bow before Christ, and to give glory to Christ. Now all of this we we see, as Paul wraps up this passage, is to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. And this is a remarkable thing. Um, this is what we have been made for. This is uh, what we have been created for. The Lord, uh, slightly later in the book of Isaiah, mentions uh, that he has formed us for his glory, that our very purpose in existing is to glorify him. Um, we make this uh, summarized in, in the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And yet, something is really remarkable here in the work of Jesus Christ, in in that uh, even though God is as glorious as he possibly can be in and of himself, we can't add anything to the glory of God. He does not become more glorious through the work of Christ. Yet, his glory is revealed in a greater extent through what Jesus has done than it has ever been seen before in creation. You can think of many of the Psalms extolling the glory of the Lord. The skies show forth his handiwork. Um, Creation reveals the glory of God to us. And yet there is something even greater revealed, made manifest, made clear to us in the work of Jesus Christ. God gloriously showing that he is a God who is gracious and merciful. A God who does not repay our sins as they deserve. 
A God who is both the just and the justifier. He, he punishes sin. He, he doesn't simply pass over it. He, he pours out the wrath and the curse that sin deserves, but he does it on his son so that our sins can be forgiven, so that our sins can be washed clean. And he does this by coming, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, coming in human form and taking that wrath upon himself, suffering the punishment and the curse that we deserve to, to wash us and to cleanse us. And in all of this, we be, behold the glory of the Father. We see his character revealed. We see his, his perfection revealed, his, his perfect wisdom, his, his perfect love, his, his glorious uh, willingness to humble himself for our sake. And so we respond to what Jesus has done by giving glory to God the Father. This is what we do as, as we bow our knee before him and as we confess that he is Lord. As we do that, as we come to Jesus by faith, as, as we come to Jesus as, as Christians and confess him and follow him and serve him, we glorify God the Father. Because we are now his handiwork, showing forth the work that he is doing, showing forth uh, the work of his Holy Spirit in us, carrying out his holy will. As we bow before Jesus and as we confess his name and as we carry that out in, in serving one another in humility, we glorify God the Father. Because we, we show forth in, in our own actions that we are becoming like his son who was perfect in his obedience, perfect in his character, beautiful in the way that he humbled himself and served his father, even to the point of death on the cross. And so here, as Jesus is exalted, he is one with the father, and the father is exalted. As Jesus serves, he, he shows the beautiful character that is God's alone. He shows the beautiful love that is God's alone. And the Father is exalted. As we confess and as we bow the knee, we recognize that God is sovereign and God is exalted. In all of this, Paul is showing us that, that what we do in the church matters. That as, as we follow Jesus Christ in obedience and as we serve one another in love, ultimately God is glorified. God is honored in that. And so he's calling us to do this, not, not for our own glory, not for our own sake. He's, he's not holding this out as a, a means to receive the blessing of God, although elsewhere in the New Testament uh, we do read that uh, God exalts those who humble themselves. God is not holding this out to us here as a formula for us to lay hold of the blessings of God. Rather, he is saying, do this. Be like Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, because as you follow him, as you confess him, as you bow the knee before him, and as you live that out in Christian humility before one another, serving each other, counting each other more significant than yourselves, you bring glory to God, and that's our chief end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, for his beautiful work, for his, his glorious service and sacrifice as our Messiah, as our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for his exaltation 
that you have bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name, that all of creation can see that he is Yahweh, come in the flesh, that he is God. And that now, as the God-man, as the one who has been born in our likeness and comes as our representative, comes to redeem us, he rules over all creation. Lord, help us to bow before him and to confess him here and now. I pray, Lord, if there are any here who have not yet done that, who have not yet recognized Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would convict them by your spirit, that you would draw them to yourself, and that you would bring them to this confession. And Lord, I I pray that as you do that, um, that we might more and more give glory to you in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.